how would a, a firm owner know when they are at such a point or fork in the road, whatever it is. So getting your head up and thinking strategically and recognizing the signs, recognizing the tides coming in or there's a shark in the water. How, how do you recognize where you're at? You have to have a, a significant event, a driver that, that causes it. it like it, what? Example, one of them right now is uh, leadership just changed. You and your team are now starting to make these changes. The second driver is the, the personal problem got so bad, the people problem got so bad, I can't retain. I can't compete enough. Uh, my pricing isn't right. My client base isn't right. And that's a key to a lot of this. So when we get into pricing, we talk to firms about pricing. If the fee structure we've got in place, not the higher fee that it should be. Not just hurting myself financially as a partner in the firm, I'm hurting my staff. Because I don't have the money to pay them more, which I'm gonna to need to pay them more in this open market. I don't have the money to make the investment in the technology. There's a great movie called Moneyball, which talks about the baseball players and the statistics and the measuring all the wrong numbers. We're here with a guy, Bob Lewis, that knows the right numbers for accounting firms. Do you think accounting firms knew all about the right numbers, Bob, wouldn't you? I know a lot about numbers in accounting firms. Uh, and I was an accountant a very, very long time ago, but every day we talk to firms about their financials, what their firm is worth, uh, what they're thinking to do, how, how to make a change. Literally every day. Uh, I had four calls yesterday with different firms from a couple million dollars up to just about shy of a hundred million in size on what they're trying to do with their overall strategy and, and looking at their where they're headed. There's a lot to jump into here. And we're talking about disrupting the accounting firm. I I often feel accounting as a profession is undisruptible. They've been doing it the same way for thousands of years, debits and credits, running firms, partnership models, but you are definitely uh, of the opinion that they can be disrupted and they should be disrupted. So what's all that about, Bob? Give us a little bit of context. Well, the disruption is hitting them no matter what. There's not a choice. It's not like it's like we should flip this thing upside down because it's not working. You know what's really working? Accounting firms are making a lot of money. So it's hard to disrupt a system when somebody's making a lot of money. The problem is, though, the disruption is occurring all around them and they can't control it. And it started, it started with the labor force shortage. That was, that's been a big driver. And, and if anybody's seen the Austin Powers movie uh, where the slow steamrollers coming at the security guard, he can't get out of the way. We've seen it coming. It's hard to move when we're making so much money and we've got so much work to do that you, you stood there and you watched it and watched it. Now a lot of firms are trying to catch up. Like how do they increase, how do they utilize technology better inside their, their firms? Plus, if you look at one of the major disruptions that's really occurring outside of the workforce here is the whole tool sets have changed. Are we actually technologists now that do accounting? <laughs> or, or are we accountants that use technology? And it's actually turning the corner where we're becoming technology companies and the output is the accounting, the tax, and the assurance work. And when I use the word we, by the way, for all the uh, managing partners and partners and firms, I understand I'm not one of you in that club, but um, you're all my members. You're all the people I talk to all day long. So um, although you're doing the accounting work, we, we understand what you're doing and the challenges you're facing. Well, Bob, you're at the Visionary Group. You specialize in helping firms navigate the transitions and there are so many different transitions buying and selling are, are the obvious too but there's a lot of change going on you work with managing partners all the time what are the most common topics you talk about when you're talking to leaders and owners of firms 
Uh, most of them right now are looking at what we'll call the inflection point. So the inflection point may be different, Rob, for your firm versus my firm yep. versus you know, Anne's firm. Anne's a fictional character, by the way, for those on this podcast. She's <laughs> not here. Uh, so the, the issue is, what's your inflection point? Have you hit an age curve? That's a very common one right now. The average baby boomer, according to whoever you talk to, is 67, 68 years old. Wow. And historically, they've owned 60% of the businesses, at least in the United States. I'm guessing that globally, it's not that different of a, of a number. Agreed. Um, that pr- number is probably shrinking a little bit now because I think some of the boomers have already exited and transitioned. But all of that disruption just caused by age alone is one. Then we look at what's happening with the technology sector. And the, what we call, we call foundational investments these firms need to make in people, technology, and the artificial intelligence is it's at its infancy at best um, right now. And I'm not saying it's a bad product and it doesn't work. I'm just saying that what's going to be coming is going to be just phenomenal. A simple example, Rob, if you have a television, okay, or have seen a television at one point in your life, uh, you know, they went from tubes to yeah. uh, plasma. If anybody remembers the plasma TVs, which were a great sensation when they came out. Then they went to the, you know, uh, LCD format. And at one point, the LCD format TVs were only like uh, 17 or 20 some inches because that's all they could scale it to. Yeah. Once they figured out the technology, now you walk into like a big box uh, store and look at TVs that are almost the size of, you know, an entire wall of a home <laughs> because they figured out how to scale the technology. And the price went from a plasma TV at one time was like $5,000, which now is a dinosaur. Now you can buy a giant 100 inch plus TV for thousand dollars and and you know that technology has rapidly changed that kind of technology when you look inside an accounting firm you look at the workflow tools these people are using the software products they're using everybody complains about how software doesn't work really well imagine what this job would be like if it was all manual Hmm. and i'm going to date i'm going to carbon date myself a little bit here rob (laughs) i started doing accounting on a manual trial balance wow a pencil and paper. I know it's astounding. And some of the people, the three people who listen to this are going to be like, I did that too. Um, but the uh, the reality is this technology is changing really fast. The aging factor is hitting us. We've got a work shortage here. And what's really happened, which got interesting, is outsourcing used to be 20 years ago, a way to cut costs. Mm-hmm. It's not a way to cut costs anymore. It's a way to augment the firm's ability to deliver work. Uh, the cost benefit of it is still in there as a piece of the equation, but the cost benefit is rapidly beginning to go away too because our outsourcing partners continue to raise their fees and, and their structure because their workforce is demanding it as well. Granted, it's still cheaper to outsource than it is to do it internally, but that's not the main goal anymore. The main goal is how do we get the client deliverable done by using outsourcing. But here's the real killer that's causing disruption right now. So because of all these factors, I've got foundational investments I need to make. I've got aging partners. I've got unfunded deferred comp programs. Private equity entered this marketplace. Now, we have done our first private equity deal recently. It was a fairly substantial firm. Uh, It's not going to be made public, which is also one of the things that apparently is happening now, too, is not all these transactions are being made public. You only see the ones that are listed in um, other uh, groups like accounting today and, you know, inside public accounting. Uh-huh. Um, but PE is pervasive. It's literally in any firm from probably $5 million and up has at least had considerations, had conversations 
Um, and it's going to continue to go downward into smaller firms eventually after these platforms are in place. But that's a whole change in the business structure. And it's not just private equity entering the market. It's what's happening to other firms trying to make a, a traditional transaction occur. That has changed how they have to approach the market now, too, because to compete with private equity pricing, yeah. they are now upping a lot of their bids on these 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 other firms to bring them in because if I'm a if I'm a firm looking to get out, and say I'm a ten or fifteen million dollar firm looking to get out, and I'm being offered, let's call it uh, 1.75 times revenue, the old model. You have to do everything based on EBITDA, but there's a whole complicated formula that we don't have enough time to, to get into on this one. Um, Thank you. If for somebody wants to understand the, the EBITDA to multiple to conversion to value price formula, we can explain that to them pretty easily. Um, it's changing how a traditional firm is looking at acquiring a $10, 15000000 million firm, and it's eventually going to be how they're going to be acquiring a $5 million firm. Yeah. Because uh, there's more cash involved, there's different considerations involved in terms of either plugging into a set infrastructure versus going into a private equity model that's building its infrastructure. And that's a big consideration right now. These are just crazy things I've never thought I'd ever see happening. And I've been doing it for almost 30 years now for just accounting firms. Let's talk about some of these in inflection points. You've hinted at a few. How would a, a firm owner know when they are at such a point or fork in the road, whatever it is, because many I talk to that they're head down in the business and the people that work there are head down, serving the clients, super busy, deadlines, every, everything else. So getting your head up and thinking strategically and recognizing the signs, recognizing the tides coming in or there's a shark in the water. How, how do you recognize where you're at? You have to have a, a significant event, a driver that, that causes it. it like it, what? Example, one of them right now is uh, leadership just changed. So okay. I've been the managing partner for the last 15 years. I turned the helm over to you, Rob, who is a significantly yeah. younger individual. Okay. I don't know if you really are for this conversation, but I'm going to make it that way. I appreciate so, the compliment. So Rob comes in and now he's bringing a different set of ideas that, that, that I may have either held back on wanting to do, didn't have the time to do, didn't, didn't want to make the investment into. Sure. You and your team are now starting to make these changes. The second driver is, the personal problem got so bad. The people problem got so bad. I can't okay. retain. I can't compete enough. Uh, my pricing isn't right. My client base isn't right. And that's a key to a lot of this. So when we get into pricing, we talk to firms about pricing. Well, my client won't pay that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here's the problem. If, if my client won't pay that and I'm making the decision that I don't think the client will pay that much money, but I still continue to support the client at the fee structure we've got in place, not the higher fee that it should be. Not just hurting myself financially as a partner in the firm, I'm hurting my staff because I don't have the money to pay them more, which I'm going to need to pay them more in this open market. I don't have the money to make the investment in the technology. I don't have the money to open up my advisory arm, which is the next frontier happening. Um, the So pricing is an issue and pricing is often driven by the client selection. And also my own personal opinion on my selling skills, um, my comfort discussing pricing with the client. And those are variables that a lot of firms don't want to address and deal with. If I've been a professional in an accounting firm for the last 30 years, and I'm getting kind of comfortable, I'm getting towards where me, I'm looking at retirement, I don't want to make a lot of changes. I've got clients for 10, 15, 20 years. It's a hard conversation for me, Rob, to go to you and go, need to increase your fee by 35% because really you don't fit our business model anymore and we can't afford to service you. 
So my decision is I'm either going to eat that 35% fee I should give you increase, and then I hurt my staff and my firm, or I go, I have the conversation with you and I may potentially lose you as a client. Mm. But in this market right now, firms are trying to lose clients. They can't. Even with large fee increases, they can't lose them. It's like, it's like, it's like they're stuck to them. And I'm, I, it's kind of funny because people think we're an accounting firm sometimes. They get a little confused because they see our name and we're in the accounting industry. So I get these emails from, from groups going, I need somebody to help us do our tax return. Our, our current accountant has left us. Or um, we need somebody who's more responsive to do our tax work. We don't do any, we don't do any accounting work or tax work here. So I mean, I, we get these emails. Probably, I probably get about three a week. Asking us, if I had an accounting firm, I'd be picking up a lot of new clients. Um, You'd be but, in the money club. But they don't have any place to go. And it, that's, that's a, that disruption alone, when you think about it, if you've been running an accounting firm for so long and your business is in debits and credits, as you started talking about, right? debits and credits, right? Getting the tax return out. And all of a sudden, I got to turn into more of a consultant that looks at my client base and says, I can't afford to work with these people anymore. Mm -hmm. Or I need to be starting looking at my clients and going, what other services do they need that I'm not comfortable talking to them about or I don't have? And accountants care, don't they, Bob? They, they've got that duty of care and they take that seriously. So they don't just want to jettison clients. Oh, God, no. That's, a, that's, that's gut-wrenching. For most of them, it's an emotional gut-wrenching issue. And, you know, because they, they view their clients as friends and many of them are their friends. I mean, they'll go golfing with these people, they'll go socializing with them, do country clubs, restaurants, whatever. And, and it's tough, especially in the smaller, the smaller the community gets. Look, I'm in Chicago. You know, I, I can get lost in Chicago if, if I really wanted to get lost in Chicago. You know, there's a lot of people here. You know, if I lost a couple of friends, if I was on a CPA firm and lost a couple of friends because of pricing, I could probably make quite a few new ones. But if I'm in a smaller town, smaller community, that decision gets even more difficult because these are the people I'm going to see at the grocery store. Or I'm going to see at the restaurant. And... People I go to church with, they're, they're just well, all over, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, there's that, that whole social network that, uh, that is a driver behind some of this too. And Bob, when I, let me go back to disrupting a modern-day accounting firm. I would imagine there are a lot of firms that are just chugging along quite nicely and an offer comes in. It could be PE, it could be another bigger firm. That would disrupt a firm, wouldn't it? Because all of a sudden, the senior people are scrambling and and – maybe trying to preserve independence or they're looking for an out. And there's all kinds of crazy conversations now happening. Yeah. Well, that's a really good point. So we the conversation we had yesterday with, with two firms, which are looking at putting themselves together. Okay. The amount of investment that the smaller firm needs to make, one will be very challenging for them to financially do to do the right thing. So what happens is maybe they compromise. So instead of hiring the quality person they needed to really get it to go right, they had to hire the B-level player because that's all they could afford. So the B-level person comes in, no offense to the B-level person, they just don't have the skills or the experience that the A-level person had. The, the firm thinks they filled the slot, they filled the hole, but they really didn't. They, they just created uh, another layer of probably difficulty to navigate through because they did not have that, that money. The people side of it's very interesting. So when you look at the disruption piece, look, we're not the people that come in and, and tell you how to structure your remote workforce or how to make your people feel better or more comfortable or more relaxed or whatever. But right now that's a challenge firms are looking at is how do they manage the people side? 
And, and one of the things we've come down to, maybe we're not right here, okay? But, but you know, we go through different theories and we see things, we observe stuff in firms. I think the challenge a lot of firms are having is what motivates their people beyond money? Right. I think that's a big issue. I think money is a driver for a lot of the professionals and firms going, hey, I think I can make another $20,000 a year working for you, Rob, so I'm going to go work for you, right? Doing the same thing I was doing for the other firm, but for $20,000 more, it's not a bad option. Yeah. Or you're going to offer, I can work from home and don't have to leave my house. And in theory, the, I always love the argument is, the argument is, well, I'll be two hours more productive because I don't have to travel back and forth. Not really, okay? Um, but... What motivates people outside of money is really a factor. And I think, that, you know, right now everybody's gravitating at this remote workforce issue and I can, you know, I can flex in and out or work. I don't think that's the answer. I think the answer that really motivates the person to want to stay is seeing the vision that the firm has in place, mm -hmm. that they are, they are becoming more advisory-minded and they're giving more skills, I think, that can be more consultative with the client. You know, when you get into selling, there's a lot of confusion on that. People that don't sell for a living... They think selling is like when you go to buy a car or the window guy calls and goes, hey, look, the new window's in. I always, by the way, the answer for that, if the window guy calls, the easiest way to get rid of the window guy and door guy is go, I just put new windows in last year. Yeah. And what are they gonna say? What's the comeback on that? There you go. That tip's for free. Yeah. So, but tips, yeah, selling tips for free. But that's not selling. That's selling in a different model. What we do in the accounting profession what I do in my profession, I do consultative selling. It's helping solve a problem, fix an opportunity, identify the opportunity that maybe needs to be fixed or the obstacle. And that's what I really think will motivate people to stay inside a firm that maybe they're always going to be doing compliance work. I mean, I love the discussions about compliance work is going to go away completely. Yeah, probably, you know, like that... Uh, my manual trial balance, that, that went away. I don't think there's so many firms doing manual trial balances anymore. I, I would be, I'd like to profile one on your, on your show if that would if we follow one. Um, but, you know, the market has changed. The tool sets have changed. What are the drivers that make an employee more engaged and wanting to stay inside a firm? And I tell you, the firms that are looking moving into data analytics and working up their advisory arms. They're, they're being more progressive and taking an offshoring work. Um, because they don't want the, the staff doesn't want to do the, the more grind kind of work. They want to do the more thinking kind of work. I think firms are wrestling with the whole issue still of, is it okay for me to outsource? Can I, I into it had put out a fact at one point, um, 80% of the firms in the United States, I'm going to stick with the United States here on this one, Rob, have not tried outsourcing 80%. So is that a perception issue? Is it a cost? It's not a cost issue. It's probably more a perception issue or a management issue. And um, that's a big factor. Can you imagine when they start to, to outsource more or when the technology becomes even better, how are they going to manage that technology, which is also, I think, a major disruptor coming up because I can't manage technology. I'm, I'm probably the least technology literate person here. I'm not bad, but if we want to get into break-fix, I'm probably not the person to bring in the break fix. We mentioned at the top of the show that the movie Moneyball with Brad Pitt. And yep. for baseball fans, it's essentially a, a team that has very little money and they want to buy success. They've got to release some big players. And the metric they go for is let's find players that can get on base. People that have watched the movie will realize that, that that was really the only metric they used. 
Now, you're a fan of Moneyball. What are the metrics that really count in accounting firms without getting too geeky on us, Bob? <laughs> are you accusing me of getting geeky? Don't, don't, don't <laughs> oh, I'm a former high school math teacher, so I can go some of the way with you on the stats, but uh, it, stats so, can get really deep. So here, here's, here's what we look at. Our, we have one core big driver we look at a measure, and that's revenue per professional head. I'll give an easy, I'm going to calculate this easily for you. Revenue per professional head. Revenue per professional head. $10 million firm. Okay. 50, five zero, full-time equivalent accounting professionals. That would be from a staff accountant all the way to the managing partner. Now, for this calculation, we leave out all administrative professionals. Support staff. Okay. So we we get all the support staff out. In, in this world right now, if you have contract labor, and if you have outsourcing in place for the first calculation, we leave all that off the table. All right. And that's a material change because if a firm is really heavily invested in outsourcing, that can change this number a lot. But what we do is you take 10 million divided by 50 in this example, I've got $200,000 revenue per professional head. Got it. Now, if I'm sitting in a smaller portion of the country, that could be a great number. If I'm sitting in downtown Manhattan, uh, I probably need to be closer to 300. We've seen firms over 500. Now, that driver, though, to me, indicates what they've got in terms of pricing, um, how they, what kind of clients that they have, what maybe the realization issues they're having, what kind of service mix they have. That's a first indicator of where they're at. So underneath that, we look at other drivers. Like as an example, one of the simplest drivers to me inside a firm is cash flow. So looking at um, how, how dated their AR is, how much their accounts receivable is as a proportion to their revenue, um, how long does it take for you to get a bill on a door? So Rob, I finished an engagement with you and um, I wait two months to send you the bill <laughs> and you wait three months to pay the bill. So I've got a five month cash flow there. Oh, well, let's go further. It took me two months to get the bill to you. However, <laughs> I did the job four months ago. I didn't finish it until like a week before I sent to got ready to get the bill. So I thought the time gaps are huge, right? So I have to look at that and go, how do I break down each piece? How do I, how do I knock down what we call a lever underneath that particular driver? How do I fix the collection process? How do we look at the billing process? How do we look at when in billing? So Rob, the other part of this is I've decided it's a $20,000 bill. I'm looking at to send you, but I send you a bill for 17 because I don't think you're going to pay 20. So I've already decided you're not going to pay 20 before you even send the bill two months late and wait three more months to collect it. So I keep knocking all my numbers down. Why would you do that when we have a capacity challenge market with more clients possible to grab than anywhere any time in the history of accounting firms. I'm trying to shed clients, yet I'm holding on to clients doing that process. Mm -hmm. That's an example of one of the drivers that would impact the revenue for professional head. Then we have to look at realization. There's a series of different drivers, and that may change by firm, but if I can start knocking off what we call a lever underneath each driver that impacts the main driver, which the revenue for professional head, I'm good. Now, how do you adjust for outsourcing? So what we do is we look at a second metric. Second metric is, we take the outsourcing people and we typically count them at about 50% or half a body. It's not because they're half a person, but if I have 10 people outsourcing, the cost structure, and this is a little bit of a thumb on a scale guess, is going to be probably half. So if I got 10 people outsourcing, I may add five people back into that secondary number and go, what's my adjusted revenue per professional head with my outsourcing? And 
then you can do a fully loaded one with your with your admin professionals and everybody included as well. So look at your revenue per professional head three different ways. But to me, the core is the professionals in-house that you're using. Um, that's your big driver. So when you sell a house, Bob, there are things that affect the price of the house and things that affect the sellability of the house. For instance, if you have a swimming pool, it might not add that much to the price, but it would make the sell happen faster. If you've got it beautifully decorated, it wouldn't add much to the price, but it would add to the sellability of how fast it sells. It might, you might call it a vanity metric, but it gets the job done. So you've got a hard metric there on fees for professional person. Are there any other metrics that are in there that influence the sellability of a firm? Yes, staffing. Staffing is one. So what does my bench look like? So it's not uncommon for us to a call from a firm where the partners, two or three partner firm, all in their 60s. And there's a gap. The next person down is 45. And that person, you know, is going to be able to run the firm, but they really don't want to buy the firm. And then there's a gap underneath that. Staffing is one huge one. The other part is lack of a niche. So if I have a generalist firm and I have all kinds of clients all over the place, it's, it could be very profitable based on how I'm, I'm working it, but it's probably not desirable. So if you're looking at the, the curb appeal in this one, using your house analogy, the curb appeal isn't that great. I walk into the firm, I've got a lot of a more mature individuals, a diverse client base, and here would be the third piece that really can be really, really damning. Um, the clients are a little too small. So if I'm gonna take my $3 million firm that you and I have created, Rob, and it's a phenomenal firm, we're making a great income from it, and it's made up of a bunch of million dollar kind of size clients, why would a 10 or $15 million firm, which is probably what I'm going to go into at least, want to acquire that when their clients are all five to $100 million? Got it. Yeah. Is there another factor too in how digitized that firm is, if I can put it that way, the tech, the processes involved? Because if they're still dealing with Excel spreadsheets and they don't automate bank feeds and everything else, they're still in the old world. It, does that affect things, Bob? Yes. Uh, in fact, we have some clients that just have a hard, fast rule on if they're first of all using any kind of any kind of paper format still that that that's a right off the bat that's a deal killer for a lot of our clients because they have not either converted or aren't using technology properly a lot of firms will have old technology they use but you know i love excel spreadsheets by the way since i used to be an accountant yes one thing that happens in an excel spreadsheet that nobody everybody thinks about that turns a blind eye to is i dump all the data into an excel spreadsheet then i start modeling what if I made a modeling error? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I lose all integrity once you dump something into an Excel spreadsheet. All data integrity is gone. So if you're going to start looking at like um, quality of data and things like that, it has to be all an automated system. It can't be, can't be dumping it into Excel. But the, um, the, the main thing here when we're looking at, um, at these firms is are they using any kind of workflow? Are they, you know, are they, how, how far behind are they on the technology? And it's okay if they're behind and, you know, because they haven't been able to make the investment. Getting back there, you know, Rob, who's going who's gonna to manage that technology inside mm. your firm? I mean, if I got a 10-person firm, who's, who's my technology person? It's typically one person in the firm who knows how to use technology better than anybody else, and then maybe an outsourced IT company when things really go bad. Yeah. What happens to the firms that are not viable 
they're not sellable, if you like. They've got all the wrong things in place, even though they might be profitable on some metrics. Will they just be obsolete? They'll die on the vine? Okay, so I had this conversation yesterday with the firm. Um, they're making really good money. They're making way too much money because they've made no investments in literally anything. Well, you say cash flow is important. So on one metric, they're doing okay, Bob. Well, they're doing okay because they don't have any staff. And they're. if you want to look at the curb appeal again, here's another big peel back the cover. It's not quite as obvious on the curb appeal. You got you to lift the bed sheet back on this one and take a look. For our international listeners, what's curb appeal, Bob? Curb appeal is when I drive up to the house and go, it's a beautiful house. It looks great. And then I walk inside and I realize, well, there's no floors. Okay. Outside looks great. Good bushes, painted nice, brick house, whatever. Uh, and, and I walk inside and it's a disaster. Here's a disaster. I peel back the bed covers and I look and go, oh, they're doing 2,500 billable hours per partner. Well, no wonder they're so profitable because... If a partner in a firm shouldn't be doing 2,500 billable hours, a partner firm should be doing 800 to maybe 1,000-ish kind of billable hours and being leveraged. The best partner of all in a firm is the one that builds nothing. That's a highly leveraged individual. I talked to a, a partner once in one of the top 30 firms, and he goes, I only bill 50 hours a year. Whoa. 50. My job, my job is to make sure that the, the clients we charge a million dollars plus two stay. And my job is to do M&A work in the firm. And I said, well, wow, those 50 hours a year must be really, really expensive. He said, yeah, they really are. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's not his function. He's leveraged. The firm is very well leveraged. So if I walk into a firm and they've got all partners billing 2,000 hours a year, of course it's going to be very profitable because I don't have staff being pushed out to. Mm -hmm. And... And, and that's a problem where I, I haven't made the investments in technology that are really important to make. And I think the costs in AI are going to be really high, but I do believe that's going to close the, the labor, the labor gap too, because people will be able to do more with, with less staff. And we're already at the less staff level. So if they'll be able to do more with what they've got. Mm. So the message here, Bob, is that disruption is coming. It's already here. We hear about the term VUCA. VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. That's that's disruption in in a in an acronym right there, isn't it? So it's already coming. The message to our listeners here that own firms, lead firms, and just work in firms is if if disruption's gonna happen, make it happen on your terms. Get disruptive ready, future ready. Would that be your message? Yeah, don't let it hit you. Approach it. Even if you don't act on it, it, it at least have a thought through or see it coming. Going back to our money ball, I want to see the pitch going to hit me. Okay, I don't want it just to hit me out of out of, out of cold. But you know, when we the reason we start talking about this whole thing about money ball, and we're we're going to be doing a, a one of the main sessions on this coming up at the at, at BDO's Alliance Conference in May. Look, this whole thing comes down to really data analytics. What what the people did in that in the Oakland A's and the, the money ball movie is they started looking at okay, we can't compete with what we've got. Yes. So how do we use our data differently? How do we play the game differently? And that's exactly what they did. They learned how to play the game differently. In the end, by the way, just for those who haven't seen that movie, the Oakland A's went on a giant winning streak after uh, after getting crushed earlier in the season. They ended up uh, going into the uh, playoffs to get into the playoffs and lost the final playoff game. But two years later, the Boston Red Sox used the exact same strategy and won the World Series. 
So, you know, they changed the way the game was played and or at least they attempted to change it completely. And, and that's what we see happening in, in the accounting profession. The game we used to play is no longer the same game. It's not debit and credit and block and tackle. It's simply, well, I mixed my metaphors there. Block and tackle is football, um, <laughs> not baseball. The uh, It's not that anymore. It's, it's, it's how do we help our client? How do we add maximum value to our client outside of tax and accounting and insurance? How do we get them beyond just knowing their financial position strong or comfortable or at risk? That's where the game has changed. CPA firms, accounting firms, they're becoming, they'll become consultant agencies. That's it. And part of their consulting agency is always going to be compliance work. It's always going to be tax returns, accounting work, insurance work. But the real client value add is I got a thousand clients. They all have technology issues. They've got selling issues. They've got growth issues. They've got succession transition issues. Yeah. Those are, and, and you're right. They do trust the accounts. Accounts are more than this, Bob, as we wrap up, it goes to the very fabric of an accounting firm. How is it set up? What is the business structure or the business model that makes it so efficient and so buyable or sellable? There's so much disruption there, isn't it, in the old managing partner, partner model? Yeah, there's a lot of talk about that going away. Um, I think like in any, any business, it will change, but it won't go away. I think there'll still be firms that are going to run very efficiently and very well off the managing partner partnership model. Some are moving more to a corporation. So if you look at what's happening with private equity, that is moving more to a corporate structure. The one thing I did realize uh, from my own self-awareness from my private equity ventures so far in, in this marketplace, um, what private equity brings to the table other than money, they bring a different leadership style. I mean, PE people are kind of professional leaders. They come in, they run a business, they run a business with a little less emotion and a little more uh, business focused. We're in a lot of these firms, my own company included, it's it's emotional. Am I the best manager in the world? Probably not. Um, it's not what I'm trained to do. It's what I evolved to do. I think that's one of the things that's changing in a lot of these firms now is bringing in professional leadership when they've got scaled to a size where the, the partnership model may, may struggle a little bit. That's that's a, a curve I see coming. Let's wrap this up, Bob. Final comments. A lot of our listeners are owners, leaders in firms, managing partners, CEOs, if you want to call them. But there's a lot coming through the ranks that want a voice in the firm or have a voice. They've got a say in the way a firm is run and the direction in which a firm is going. What would be your message to them in the age of disruption we live in? Speak up. Look, what we see in firms is people, will, it's easy to complain about what goes wrong and, you know, what, what's not working. Just own it. Take leader, take, you know, stand up and go, I want to be, I want to, I'm having a workflow problem inside our firm. We, our workflow is a mess. Let me own it. Then. Let me, let me and two others find the right solution, test the right solution, bring it to market, and then, then roll it out firm wide. But own it, take a piece of it. Because you know what the partners are looking for? They're looking for people to step up. And, and stepping up can be risky because it's you're, you're probably going to make some mistakes. I mean, it's just part of the process. I've made more mistakes in this business than I ever thought. I I, I think this company has is, is, is died and reborn probably four or five times in the last 10 years because of the way the model's changing out there. But that's what that's what partners are looking for. And I think staff is sometimes afraid to do that because they're, they're, they feel like they need to just focus on the workflow and get the work out. 
the real innovators are the people that are going to break through and take ownership of these kind of things, like how to open up the advisory arm, how to handle the offshoring, how to handle the technology changes. Your, your partnership teams would love that. They would love for somebody to step up and take lead on those. That, that to me, is, would be my advice for the younger professionals. They say if you think change is hard, try not changing and see what happens then because it's coming. Okay. Isn't it? Yeah, it does. It, 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 it creeps up on you. You know, kind of like an older creeps up on you. Yeah. And you're like, oh, no, I can, I'll just go to health club and, you know, look a lot better. That isn't going to happen. Uh, I need to go to health club 10 years ago and start working on that. Uh, maybe the cosmetic surgeon at this point, Rob. I don't know. We'll, you we'll still got it. There. You still got the rock star. Look, Bob Lewis, that's been enlightening. Thank you for all your <laughs> insights and, and the great stuff you and the visionary group do. Thanks, Rob.